please, and turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now, there's no way in the world you can retain what I'm going to preach to you tonight by hearing the message one time. And so I think it'd be good if you'd take some notes on this message. Uh, by the way, you folks are easy to preach to. If a fella can't preach in this pulpit, he doesn't have any preach in him. But an evangelist can come into a church and preach for five minutes, and he can tell what the people are used to. And it's obvious you folks are used to Bible preaching. All right, Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. Notice, please. And I saw when the Lamb opened one with seals, and I heard were the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Whenever you see horses in the Bible as being symbolic, they are generally symbolic of judgment, warfare. I want to say that when the church of Jesus Christ is raptured, there will be judgment, there will be warfare. In the ancient procession, the victor led a white horse and led the procession. Now horses uh, to the Oriental men attacked, march, and battle. Somebody mistakenly says, this rider on the white horse must be Jesus Christ. Because in the Bible, white is generally symbolic of the holiness of God or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Revelation 4 and verse 4, the four and twenty elders are dressed in white raiment, and they have on their heads crowns of gold. And because white is generally associated with the holiness of God, somebody mistakenly says this must be Jesus. Folks, there are three reasons why I don't believe it's Jesus. Number one, who was it? Uh, Antichrist, excuse me. Who was it that opened the seal? It was Jesus. So if Jesus opens the seal, he's not going to be on the white horse. Number two, the Bible says, unto this writer is given a crown. There are two words in the New Testament for the word crown. One is always connected with humanity. It is a conqueror's crown. If you and I are faithful, when we stand before the Lord Jesus, we will receive conqueror's crowns. The second Greek word is the word diadem. And that word is always associated with deity. Now, folks, if this were Jesus on the white horse, the crown given to this rider would be the diadem crown. It's not the diadem crown that's given to this rider. It is the conqueror's crown associated with humanity, so it must be a human being. All right, number three, the Bible says this rider has a bow. He has a weapon in his hand. When Jesus comes again, he will need no weapon. Isaiah 11 and verse 4, he will slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Somebody says, if this is not Jesus, then who is it? 
All right, this, I believe, is the one who is coming instead of Christ or against Christ. The Bible calls him Antichrist. Now, as far as I can tell, there is only one writer in the Bible to use the term Antichrist. And it is the same man who wrote the book of the Revelation, the Apostle John. I find it four times in John's writings. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4 and verse 7, and 2 John and verse 8. So this is Antichrist. Now listen carefully. The prefix anti can mean one of two things. It can mean instead of or it can mean against. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is coming as an imitation of Christ. He's coming instead of Christ. In the last three and a half years of the tribulation, he is coming against Christ. So both are true of the Antichrist. I call him history's greatest imitator. Now, the bulk of my message will be taken from 2 Thessalonians. Take your Bible, please, and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, according to Acts chapter 17, Paul had spent three weeks at Thessalonica. And uh, he, in uh, much of what he was talking about to the Thessalonians, had to do with the second coming. So I believe he talked about the tribulation, about the rapture, and things pertaining to the second coming. And uh, he told them about the tribulation. So he writes this book to correct an error. Somebody had written the church of Thessalonica and told them that they were going through the tribulation, that the persecution they were experiencing was the tribulation period. So Paul writes to them, and he corrects that error. Notice, please, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, doesn't that sound like the rapture? That ye be not shaken in mind, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letters from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. All right, look this way. Now, even to top this off, when they got this letter, somebody had forged it, and they put Paul's name on the end of that letter. So, folks, here they supposedly got a letter from the Apostle Paul telling them that they were going through the tribulation, and this really shook them up. So Paul writes to them, and he corrects that. He said, listen, if somebody writes you and tells you you're going through the tribulation, even if my name is on that letter, don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? All right, two things have to happen before the tribulation begins. Notice, please, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, get it, except, number one, they're calling, come a falling away first, and number two, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So, he says two things have to take place before the tribulation. Number one, 
There has to be a falling away. Now, in the Greek language, there is a definite article before the word falling away. So you know what it means? It means a falling away that I had previously spoken to you about. Now, if you'll go down to verse 5, he says, Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. Now, as far as we know, the only other letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians was 1 Thessalonians, five chapters. Now, listen carefully. If you go through those five chapters, you will not find one word about an apostasy. That word falling away can also be translated as a departure, a catching away. Do you know what I believe that great departure is? The rapture of the church. To me, this is one of the best verses in the Bible on saying that those of us who are saved will not go through the tribulation. Why? Because there has to be that departure or that catching away. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that is the great departure that he had previously spoken to them about. All right, so number one, there has to be the departure, I believe the rapture. And then number two, that man of sin be revealed as son of perdition. Now, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, after the rapture, the Antichrist is revealed to the world. He befriends the Jews. He confirms a covenant with the Jews for seven years. Now, listen carefully. I used to preach that the thing that began the tribulation was the rapture. About 40 years ago, Pastor, I had a layman in Ohio point out to me, that's not true. Now, there will be the rapture and probably very closely connected the Antichrist revealed to the world, but when he confirms that seven-year covenant with the Jews, that begins the tribulation period. How long's the tribulation? Seven years. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the 70th week of Daniel, or the tribulation. So those two things have to happen. I mentioned the other night, I believe Antichrist is living right now. You say, are you setting dates? No, let me tell you why I believe he's living right now. Do you know when Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples he was coming again. He never told them when, but he intimated he may come in their lifetime. Did you know that? John 14, 3, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And it is my contention that every disciple was expecting Christ to come in his lifetime. 1 John 2, 28, John was expecting him to come in his lifetime. 1 Peter 5 and verse 4 Peter was expecting Jesus to come in his lifetime. Uh, 
James 5, 8 and 9, James was expecting him to come in his lifetime. Paul in Philippians 3 and verse 20 was expecting him to come in his lifetime. So we believe that the rapture is imminent. That means it could take place at any time. Now, folks, there are no signs that have to be fulfilled before the rapture. And I will go a step farther than that. There are no signs that have ever had to be fulfilled before the rapture. You say, what about Matthew 24? Matthew 24 is speaking of the tribulation and the second advent of Christ coming back to earth. It is not talking about the rapture. So how many of you believe that Jesus could come at any time? Raise your hand. Okay, it's imminent. Now, if that is true, doesn't it stand to reason that there had to be a person in any generation after Jesus ascended up into heaven who could have been the embodiment of the Antichrist were Jesus to come in that generation? And I believe he is living tonight. Listen to this tremendous statement. The mood is well expressed by Henry Spake, one of the early planners of the common market and former Secretary General of NATO. He said, quote, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and to lift us up out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Now here's his conclusion. Send us such a man and be he God or be he devil, we will receive him. And folks, I'm convinced the world doesn't care whether it's God or Satan that solves their problems. They want a superman to solve their problems, and such a one is already living. Now, I want you to notice three things about the appearing of the Antichrist. Number one, the moment of his appearing. Will you notice, please, in verse 6. It says, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. All right, look this way. You have two he's and they're in contrast. In verse 6, I have circled that he. And in the margin of my Bible, I have put Antichrist. All right, verse 7, he who now letteth. That word let is the old English word for restrains or hinders. So there is somebody today that is holding back iniquity. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. I have circled that he in my Bible, he who now letteth will let, and I put in the margin of my Bible, Holy Spirit. Now, one day, those of us who are saved are going to be raptured. The Holy Spirit in his relationship to the world will be totally changed. Here's a man who curses his wife when she goes to church. She's saved. He's not. If he's got a half a brain, he'll get down on his knees and say, God, keep that wife around a while. 
Because when God raptures that wife, all hell's going to break loose on earth. Now, here is a tremendous illustration of what happens when the restrainer is gone. Take your Bible and turn, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. I'll give you a little bit to find this. Now, we do not preach like the charismatics, that you come down and get saved, and then later on you get the Holy Spirit. We believe the moment you get saved, God the Holy Spirit indwells your body. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Romans 8 and verse 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to indwell your body. All right, now notice, please, 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3. It says, Now for a long season, Israel had been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. All right, look this way. Those are restrainers, folks. Now, that's the way it'll be in the tribulation period. The world will be without the true God. The Holy Spirit who lives in the body of the believer is not restraining iniquity. He's gone. All right, they're without the true God. Number two, without a teaching priest. God's prophets will be raptured. Number three, they were without law. Now, that's ta not talking about civil authority. That is talking about the Word of God. There was a time when Israel didn't have the Word of God because those previously kings had tried to do away with it. So they were without the Word of God. Now, let me say this. Most of the versions that come off the press today are commentaries. They are not really translations. Now, there are two avenues about inspiration. There are those who believe in word inspiration. That's what this church believes. Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31, Luke 21, 33, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So we believe in word inspiration. Rick Warren believes in thought inspiration. Now, folks, if you believe in thought inspiration, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Someone said, well, I, I want a Bible that reads like a newspaper. Are you listening? There's no power in the newspaper. But bless God, there is power in this book. We've got a generation of young preachers from some of the seminaries who tell us that we don't really have the Word of God today. I've got news for that crowd. I've been preaching it for 60 years. I've had over 1,600 uh, crusades in those 60 years. There has not been one crusade in 60 years that somebody's life has not been transformed by the preaching of this book. And bless God, it still works. But you see, in the tribulation period, there will be no true word of God. All right, so what was the result of that? Go down to verses 5 and 6, please. It says, and in those times there was no peace anywhere. 
to them that went out, nor to them that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries, and nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city. Therefore God did vex them with great adversity. All right, look this way. So you see what happens when the restraints are gone? The judgment of God takes place. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this to me sounds like Matthew 24, 21, and 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So you see, Jesus knew there were not words in human vocabulary to explain the intensity of the tribulation. He simply said there's never been a holocaust like it. There'll never be a calamity like it. It's the culmination of all the holocaust of all the ages. Now here, I believe, is where we have the introduction of World War Number 1. Now you heard me right. I didn't say World War Number 3. I said World War Number One. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 16. I want you to notice two things about World War Number One. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16. Notice the place. It says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. The word Armageddon means Mount of Slaughter. Now, if I were giving you a Bible geography lesson tonight, here's what I would do. I would put a whiteboard where this pulpit is. Right down the center of that whiteboard, I would put a line. To the left of that line, as you're looking at it, would be the Mediterranean Sea. To the right of that line would be Israel. All right, I would go north in Israel, put a dot, that would represent Mount Carmel. I would go 14 miles diagonally down this way, put a dot, that would represent Mount Tabor. I would go 14 miles diagonally down that way and put a dot, and that would be Mount Gilboa. So strictly speaking, World War Number 1 will be fought in a plot of ground 14, 14 by 24. Do you know that is the most perfect uh, battlefield in the world, and, and it is the most important real estate in the world. It adjoins three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And anybody who controls the world by necessity will have to control that plot of ground 1414 by 24. Napoleon Bonaparte fought there. You know what he said about that? He said that's the most perfect battlefield in the world. He had no idea what he was saying. All right, number one, the place, uh, Mount, the Armageddon, Mount of Slaughter. Notice, please, number two, the people, verse 14. It says, and they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, get it, and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. All right, look this way. Folks, why did I say World War Number 1? We have never had a war when all nations were involved. This will be the first one. Zechariah 14 and verse 2, I will gather all nations 
against Jerusalem. Psalm 2 and verse 2, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break asunder their bands and cast away their cords from us. Now, I don't want to be above your heads, but I think this is very interesting. There are two words for the word battle in the Greek language. One word means an isolated event, one battle. The second Greek word means a series of battles or an entire war. Do you know what the word for battle is in verse 14? It is not one isolated event. It is a series of battles or an entire war. It is my contention the war of Armageddon will include four campaigns. Number one. Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39. There is a horde that comes from the utmost north, which is none other than Russia. If you go north of the land of Israel with a ruler, inescapably you would arrive at Russia. All right, Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2. One day they are coming down to Jerusalem on horseback. 1975, I was in uh, Moscow, and we went to a Russian circus. Folks, I have never seen anything as spectacular as I did at that Russian circus. The American circuses can't hold a candle to what we saw that night. Now, do you know the Russians boast that they have 60% of the horses of the world? and they have a superior breed of horse that no other nation can match. That night at that Russian circus, we saw the Cossack, who was the most skillful horseman in the entire world. He would get on this superior breed of animal with a sword in his hand. He would go full speed ahead, go around the belly of that horse. He could cut off an object out of a man's hand going at full speed ahead. So, ladies and gentlemen, they're already ready to come down to Jerusalem on horseback. All right, now if you go down to Ezekiel 38, 5, and 6, there are five nations that will accompany them. First of all, there's a country called Persia. What is Persia tonight? Iran. 1935, the name Persia was changed to Iran. Secondly, there's a country called Ethiopia. If you want to identify that Ethiopia, all you've got to do is go to Genesis chapter 2. The Garden of Eden was in the region of Ethiopia. So it's none other than Iraq. So Iran is coming down. Iraq is coming down. Libya is coming down. And then there's a country called Gomer. These people have been identified as the people of Germany. Used to be fashionable to preach that that was East Germany, but Ezekiel didn't say that. Ezekiel 38 and verse 6, Gomer and all her bands. So Ezekiel looked out in the future, and he saw a day when the wall would be torn down. There would be no more two Germanys, but one Germany. Do you know that there's a disease that Germany's never gotten over? It's anti-Semitism. And so one day all of Germany will be in uh, cahoots with that crowd coming down. 
Fifthly, there is a country called Togomar. These people have been identified as the people of Turkey. Now, when they come down, millions upon millions will be slain in the northern fields of Megiddo. Ezekiel 39 and verse 4, Thou and all thy bands shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and the people that is with thee. And ladies and gentlemen, there will be millions slain. Ezekiel 39 and verse 12 says, it's going to take Israel seven months to bury all the dead bodies. I wonder what Israel will smell like when for seven months, millions of dead bodies rot in the red-hot Palestinian sand. Ezekiel 39, 11 says, the passengers that walk by will have to stop their noses because of the terrible stench. Ezekiel 39 and verse 9 says, it's going to take seven years to clean up all the dead carnage and the weapons of warfare lying in the road. All right, so I believe that's campaign number one. They're coming down from the north. Number two, Daniel 11 and verse 40. The king of the south shall push at the Antichrist. Who's that? That's the Arab and the African nations. So they're coming down from the north. They're coming up from the south. Now take your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 9, please, where we have campaign number 3. Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. Here you have a horde coming over from the east. Notice, please, verses 13, uh, verses 13 through 16. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loose, which were prepared, get it, for an hour, a day, a month, and a year, for to slay one-third, one-third part of men. And the number of the army of horsemen were 200,000 thousand, or 200 million, and I heard the number of them. Look this way. Hey, there's only one country in the world that could field an army of 200 million. Who's that? That's China. So there you have China, India, Japan, the Koreans, they're coming over the Euphrates River on horseback. And that battle will last for a year, a month, a day, and an hour. Get this, it's gonna slay more than 10 times the amount of those who have been slain in every battle of every age. Think of that. Now, in the First World War, there were 8 million casualties. Second World War, there were 78 million casualties. All the wars of all times have produced less than 200 million. If this battle were to take place in our lifetime, and by the way, thank God it won't, because we will have been raptured by this time. But it would slay more than 10 times the amount of those who have been slain in every battle. All right? So you have them coming down from the north, up from the south, over from the east. Now go to Revelation chapter 13, please, and verse 1. And it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast 
rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Somebody says, Brother Comfort, there's no sense in my reading the book of the Revelation. I can't understand it. Now, if you've been saved a short time, the book of the Revelation is not for you. The book of John is for you. But if you've been saved a while and you have a background and you come to the book of the Revelation, it usually interprets itself. Did you know that? And the best commentary in all the world on Revelation 13 is Revelation 17. All right, this beast comes up out of the sea, he's the Antichrist. The sea is a picture of the raging nations. He has seven heads and 10 horns. All right, what is that? The Bible tells us, Revelation 17 and verse nine, the seven heads which thou sawest are seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. So, most high school students can tell you that the only major city around the world that sits on seven hills or mountains is what? Rome. Rome will be the political capital of the world. It says in Revelation 17 and verse 12, and the 10 horns which thou sawest are 10 kings or kingdoms. In the book of the Revelation, a king uh, is represented as a kingdom. All right, so you have 10 major Western nations. The North has been defeated. The South has been defeated. The East has been defeated. In the middle of the tribulation period, that makes way for 10 nations to combine to be the one world government. Are you listening? In Washington, they are not talking about if we have a world government. They are talking about when we have a world government. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the atomic bomb scientist said, there must be set up a world government. Uh, uh, Dr. Perry of Harvard said, world government is in the making whether we like it or not. All right, so you have these 10 East uh, Western nations who comprise the world government. Where's the United States geographically? We're in the West. You know what you have in the West religiously? You have professing Christendom. And it is my contention, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ comes back on a white charger in Revelation chapter 19, these 10 nations are gonna war against the very Son of God from heaven, which will include the United States of America. Now go back, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And my last two points are not nearly as long as my first one. All right, so number one, you have the moment of his appearing. Number two, I want you to notice the manner of his appearing. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, even him, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So, number two, the man of his appearing, he's coming with all lying signs and wonders. Do you know the Antichrist is going to imitate a resurrection from the dead? The world is going to think that he's dead. And all over the world, by satellite, 
people will see this satanically energized Superman supposedly raised from the dead. And he will author all kind of miracles. A lot of people aren't aware that the devil's capable of doing miracles. When Jesus sent out 12 disciples, Luke 9 and verse 1, one of the 12 was Judas Iscariot. And do you know Judas did the same miracles that the other 11 did? There was nothing inferior about his miracles. So the Antichrist is coming with all lying signs and wonders. We're beginning to see the prelude of that today. Now let me tell you this. The leading religion in America in the last decade, the fastest growing religion was what? It was not Islam. It was Wicca. Wicca. Do you know even in Lattimore, in our little community, we don't even have a stop sign. But there is a Satan, satanic Wicca man who says he is in the uh, area of Satan. So they're coming with all lying signs and wonders. Somebody says, Brother Comfort, have you read about the statue in the uh, Catholic Church in Virginia that is purportedly uh, weeping? They said, do you think that could happen? I certainly do. The devil is capable of miracles. Now, let me give you a hypothetical illustration. You know, Brother Beale is animated when he leads singing. So, uh, hypothetically, he's leading singing, and all of a sudden he has a massive heart attack. And he falls over on the platform. And I go over to him, and I feel his pulse. And I say, folks, there's nothing there. And I examine his head. And I say, there's nothing there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a doctor says, Brother Comfort, let me examine Alton Beale. So he comes to the platform, and he examines Brother Beale, and he says, folks, this is a sad night. Brother Beale is dead. If we got him to the best hospital in Miami in 10 minutes, it'd be too late. Alton Beale is dead. All right, I said, Doc, step back. And I went over to Alton, and I said, Alton Beale, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand to your feet. And Brother Beale jumps up and starts leading singing again. Question, would that prove I was of God? No, sir. The Antichrist is capable of doing miracles. Now, you parents need to listen to this. I believe with all my heart, a young person who thrives on rock channels is opening the door for demon obsession or demon possession. Did you know that? A man came to me in South Bend, Indiana, and he said, Brother Comfort, I made a great mistake. I got mixed up with the Satan-worshiping crowd. I thought I could win them to Christ. But he said, I even went to the extent of attending their black masses. And he said, I saw things that keep me awake at night. And he said, do you know that the young people are flocking to the Wiccan uh, attitude and Satan-worshiping attitude? And he said, many of them got there, are you listening, through role-playing games or rock videos or the Ouija board. 
Listen, if you have a Ouija board in your home, you don't have a toy. You're playing with Satan worship. Throw that stinking thing in the garbage can. A lady came to me in Illinois. She said, Brother Comfort, I played with the Ouija board frequently when I was growing up. Nobody ever warned me about it. She said, one night in my youth group, my youth pastor warned me about the Ouija board, and I was offended. I went to him and said, listen, there's not one thing wrong with the Ouija board. I play with it frequently. It's just a lot of fun. He said, all right, let me give you a challenge. You go home and you take out your Ouija board and you say, Ouija board, Ouija board, who is your master? He said, I guarantee it'll spell out devil. So she said, I'll just prove that. She went home, took out a Ouija board, and she said, Ouija board, Ouija board, who is your master? And it began to spell out S-A. She said, I knew it wouldn't spell out devil, S-A-T-A-N. A lady in Portland, Oregon came to me and she said, I want to tell you our experience as a family with the Ouija board. She said, we played with it frequently. And everybody in the family got saved except my husband. And one night in church, the pastor was preaching along this line. And he said, if you've got a Ouija board, you get rid of it. Get it out of your house. Throw it in the fireplace. But don't let it stay in your house. By the way, uh, you don't put rock music on a shelf in the closet. You get it out of your house. Many times these rock performers will ask the blessings of Satan upon their music before they record it, record it. So the lady went home and she told her husband what the preacher had preached. And she said, honey, I will not do this without your permission, but do I have your permission to throw our Ouija board in the fireplace? He said, yes, you do. So they went as a family around the fireplace. They threw the Ouija board in the fireplace. She said, Brother Comfort, you have never heard screams of agony like emanated from that Ouija board as we threw it in. And she said, for the first time, my husband saw that there was something supernatural that was wrong about that. She said, in one month, my husband got saved. So ladies and gentlemen, let me encourage you, look at the comic books your kids are reading. You look at the video games they're playing. Many of them are saturated with a Wicca mentality. All right, number one, you have the manner of his appearing. Number two, the moment of his appearing. And number three, the message of his appearing. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses two through four. First Thessalonians five, verses two through four. It says, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall so come as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman a child, and they shall not escape. By the way, that is a tremendous proof text that we're not going through the tribulation, folks. We're not children of the night. We're children of the day. And this is going to overtake the world as a thief in the night. What's his message going to be? Peace 
peace when there is no peace. You see, among the last words that Jesus spoke before He ascended, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you, John 14, 27. Jesus offered mankind a peace that would come by receiving him as Lord and Savior. And that internal peace could lead to an external peace. But the Antichrist knows nothing about an internal peace. So he's going to be talking about an external peace, but a person can't be at peace with his neighbor. Nation cannot be at peace with nation until they know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Now in closing, if you and I were to go to the Wailing Wall all times of the day and night, you would see Jews at that Western Wall rocking back and forth and they're chanting. There are thousands of holes in the wall. If you put your finger in one of those holes, you would come back with one of three prayer requests. Number one, they are praying for the soon coming of their Messiah. Do you know in Israel, in many places, you will see pray for the coming of the Messiah. Number two, they are praying that their persecutions will be over. You know, Jerusalem has been leveled to the ground 18 times more than any city around the world. It is an indestructible city. Number three, they are praying that their temple will be rebuilt. Their blood sacrifices will be restored. When Titus and his Roman soldiers march into Jerusalem in 70 AD, they leveled the city and they destroyed the temple. Every fall, uh, the Arabs have a day that they celebrate and sacrifice, but not the Jews. They have no temple. They have no blood sacrifice. And it is close to the heart of every Jew that one day the temple will be rebuilt, the blood sacrifices will be restored, and uh, the, they'll have a place to worship once again. Last time I was in Israel, the guy took us to the uh, museum, and there was a replica of the new-built temple on a, a table like this. And she was explaining the different compartments. And she said once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. But it had to be repeated again the next year. She said, now, we don't know who our high priest is today, but we believe he's living. And we believe that God is going to reveal to us who our high priest is. And she said, we already have the materials to rebuild our temple. And she said, we believe that one day God is going to enable us to rebuild our temple on the Temple Mount. All right, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the Jews are going to think each one of these three prayer requests has been answered. They're going to say, this is our long awaited for Messiah. When he confirms that covenant, they're going to say, now we can live in peace, unharmed by our surrounding enemy. The temple will be rebuilt. The blood sacrifice will be restored. But in the middle of that seven-year covenant, the Antichrist breaks the covenant with the Jews. He turns against the Jews. And the last half is called the Great Tribulation. Now, let me close with this. How many of you have read or seen the videos left behind? Would you raise your hand? All right, they're good in many, many ways. 
Uh, it gets people to think about the second coming who've never thought about it before. I was sitting on an airplane by a man who was unsaved, but he was reading a left behind book. It gave me a tremendous opportunity to witness to him. But there's a grave error connected with that left behind series that you need to be aware of. Again, before I close, turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Here's the most often asked question to me about prophecy. Will there be any saved in the tribulation period? All right, what do you think? Let's read the scripture and then we'll go from there. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, in them that perish, get it, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, in the video that I saw, the pilot is unsaved. His wife is saved. She tries to get him saved. He wants nothing to do with it. He's having an affair with a stewardess on the airplane. One day, he's on a flight, and he's listening to his radio system, and one calamity after another is announced over his radio system. By the way, have you ever thought what the 24-hour news cycle will be like in the tribulation. One breaking news after another. So he keeps listening. Stewardess comes to the cockpit. She said, sir, many of the passengers are gone. We don't know where they've gone. We've checked the restrooms. They're not in there. Doors of the plane have not been open. So he keeps listening to his radio system. And then he says, this is what my wife warned me about. The rapture has taken place. He said, I'm going to call home to see if my wife and family are still there. So he calls home. No answer, no answer, no answer. And finally, he puts it all together. My wife was saved. She's gone. And I'm left behind. When he puts it all together, he gets saved. His daughter who is left behind, she gets saved. An evangelical preacher who's left behind puts it together. He gets saved. Are you listening? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All right, here's a question. Will there be any saved in the tribulation period? Please don't misunderstand. Millions, millions will be saved. One juncture of the tribulation, all Israel is saved. Romans 11, 26, and 27. Zechariah 12, verse 10, they look upon him whom they appears, claim him as their Messiah, and a nation is born again as in a day. According to Revelation chapter 9, uh, 7, verses 9 through 17, there'll be 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but Jews saved, and they'll take the gospel of the kingdom. And through their preaching, a multitude of Gentiles, which no man could number, is saved. All right, so there'll be millions saved, but are you listening? It won't be anybody in this auditorium tonight. You see, verse 10 says, because you received not the love of the truth that you might be saved, verse 11, for this cause God will send you strong delusion that you should believe a lie. 
So here's the bottom line. If Jesus Christ comes tonight and you're left behind, your day of grace is over. A man came to me in Atlanta. He said, do you believe we Christians really believe these things? I said, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe we theoretically believe them, but it's done nothing to change our lives. And here's an invitation that I give in every meeting I hold. And I'm going to give that invitation tonight. I say, listen, if there is a friend or a loved one that God has laid on your heart, they'd be left behind were Jesus to come. Will you promise God that in the next 12 days, you will do your best to try to win that friend or loved one to Christ? I gave that invitation in Jasonville, Indiana. A lady came forward on Sunday night and she wept over her agnostic brother. And Monday as I was eating with the preacher, she texted him and she said, Pastor, I just led my agnostic brother to Christ. I gave that invitation in a tent meeting in Pennsylvania. There were 14 churches involved in that tent meeting. And it was an eight-day meeting, Sunday through Sunday. On a Friday night, I said, now, in the next 10 days, if there's a friend or loved one you're going to try to win to Christ, I want you to come and name that loved one on your knees. A lady came that night. She was in tears. She had been a caregiver for a man for four months, and the man was on the verge of eternity, an older gentleman. And she was broken up about it. The next day was her last day to be his caregiver. And so she said, Dear God, please save the man that I've been caregiver for. Please save him. Next day she went to the place where he lay on a bed. The loved ones were in the next room awaiting the news about their granddad or their dad. And so she came to them and she said, Listen, I love your granddad. I have been his caregiver for four months, and God has knit my heart to him. I'm so concerned about his soul going out into eternity lost. She said, I'm going to go in and talk to him. Would you pray for me? They said, Sure, we'll pray for you. But we guarantee you he will cuss you out when you go in there. So she went in and she said, sir, this is the last day I'm going to be your caregiver, but I love you so much. God, in these four months that I've been your caregiver, has knit my heart to you, and you seem to me like a daddy. She said, you're going out into eternity, and you're not ready. You know what he did? He started cussing her out, and she started weeping And she said, I can't stand it. You're going out into eternity, going to hell, and you're not saved. You know what he said? When he saw her tears, he said, tell me how to know God and how to get ready to meet him. She led him to Christ. Two days later, he was out into eternity. Do you really believe what I preach tonight? God help us to believe it. Spow our heads in prayer.